Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah? We're going to have another another go at the book of Micah uh, this morning. Chapter 6, Micah chapter 6. It's in the Minor Prophets. If you um, are in the area of Jonah, you're just about there. Micah chapter 6. A few weeks ago in Sarasota, Florida, an elderly lady emerges from a mall, arms full of shopping bags, and approaches um, her car, and she sees her car being backed out of a, its parking space. Four men in the car. She drops her bags. She reaches in her purse and pulls a very large handgun and begins to scream, Get out of the car. I have a gun. I know how to use it, and I'm not afraid to use it. Well, stunned, the four men scrambled from the, from the car and exited in every direction. The lady, badly shaken, gathers her composure, gets her belongings together, gets in the car, fumbling nervously with the key, cannot make it fit the ignition. After repeated attempts, she realizes this explains why there's a football, high-top tennis shoes, a Frisbee, and two 12-packs of beer in the front seat. It's not her car. So she gets out of the car and several aisles over locates her car. This is a true story. Um, maybe embellished a little bit, but it's a true story. She locates her car and um, drives herself to the police station and goes to the desk sergeant and says, I, I have something to report. And she begins to tell him the story and he becomes hysterical. And he points over in the waiting room and he says, You must be the lady that carjacked these four men. He said, they, they, they came in so shaken. They said an, uh, an elderly lady, a little over five feet tall with a very large handgun, had just carjacked them. Um, recently, I heard about a story who made a frantic call to 911. You know, Melinda and I lived in Florida for almost 10 years, and so uh, we can relate to these stories. Um, lady makes a frantic 911 call and says, someone has stolen my steering wheel. And now that I'm looking closer, they've stolen the brake pedal and the gas pedal, too. In fact, the entire dashboard's missing. They sent an officer out there, and she realized she was in the back seat. Um, Well, Micah chapter 6, the message of Micah chapter 6, in fact, the message of the 8th century prophet Micah, is to the Lord's people who had lost their bearings. They had lost their sense of purpose. Uh, his message is addressed to people who've lost a sense of spiritual direction, their reason for being. They were somewhat aimless and pointless. And the context in Micah chapter 6 is a dramatic courtroom scene in which the Lord has called his people to accountability. He has suffered long with them. His mercy has been poured out upon them. But now there's a day of accountability and he's summoned his people to the courtroom and all of creation in verse 2 is bearing witness as jury to the Lord's case against his people. In fact, in verse 2, the Lord says that he has a case against his people. He reminds them in verses 3, 4, and 5 of his redemptive acts, of how he had delivered them from servitude in Egypt, how he had raised up leadership in Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. How he had stopped and even reversed the curses of Balaam. How he had led them from, from the wilderness into the land of promise. All of that in verses 3 through 5. And then he poses the question, how have I wearied you? How have I wearied you? And their only response, their only plea contained in verses 6 and 7 
is to respond with questions regarding outlandish, escalating, extravagant acts of worship from from extraordinary acts of devotion and worship. That's their only plea. And so God's response is to remind them of the values of real religion, which inevitably should follow the grace of redemption. What does real religion look like? How does real religion respond to the grace of God? Religion that is balanced and biblical. Religion that weds both heart and hand. Religion that honors God and helps people by combining worship with witness. Well, this is God's response in verse 8. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? One commentator says that this is the, this is the, the great text of biblical religion in the Old Testament. There are some who would believe this Old Testament text, verse 8, a short, pithy statement that encapsulates what really honors the Lord, is then expanded upon in the New Testament, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount and the letters of the apostles to the churches. Several weeks ago, we considered the first aspect of what real religion looks like, of how real religion responds to the grace of God. And it's the first aspect here, the first value of doing justice. It's uh, one aspect of the full-orbed nature and character of God. I said several weeks ago that justice translate mishpat, a great Hebrew word. It has many different applications and shades of meaning depending upon the context. But it basically describes the nature and the rule of God. Deuteronomy 10 says that the Lord executes justice for the orphan and widow and shows his love for the stranger by giving him food and clothing. The psalmist says justice is the foundation of God's throne. And the psalmist in 111 says that all the works of God's hands are done in truth and justice. And then speaking through another prophet, Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, the Lord says that I, the Lord, love justice. Therefore, justice is a reflection of the integrity of God, his moral wholeness, if you will. He is infinitely and unchangeably just. He can't be otherwise. He can be nothing less. James chapter 1 says that the Lord is, is of such dependability and such faithfulness that there is no variation with Him. There is no shadow of turning. Malachi 3 says the Lord, He's the Lord and He changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So justice is a vital aspect, a vital reflection of the nature and the character of God. But it's also what the Lord calls His people to. It's the theme that's developed in all the prophets from Isaiah through Malachi. You'll find the principles and themes woven into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. You'll find it in all of the epistles of, of the, the, um, written by the apostles to the churches. You see, justice is just one aspect of what may be called gospel imperatives. It's how we respond to the goodness and grace of God in saving us and freeing us and liberating us and bringing us into vital fellowship with himself. And it has very concrete applications. We're not left really to wonder what it looks like. It, it looks like paying adequate wages on time. It looks like meeting financial obligations. It looks like speaking the truth in love and working instead of stealing and showing honor to whom honor is due. And all of that is spelled out in both Testaments. And several weeks ago, we looked at that in more detail. 
But God, by his grace and for the good of his people, revealed what is appropriate, what honors him and what pleases him and what delights him and what manifests his nature and his character. And he has done that in the context of his revealed revelation, his word. And in the context of of Micah, rather, chapter 6, it looks like ethical business practices. Several weeks ago, we looked at verses 10 and 11, how they were using false systems of measurement driven by greed as opposed to being driven by a sense of fairness and justice. And so there are implications for doing justice in every arena of life. They abound in the workplace and relationships between employers and employees. They exist between government and citizens, between parents and their sons and daughters, between neighbor and neighbor. And so the Lord asked the question in Micah chapter 3 of his redeemed people, of people whom he calls my people. He poses the question in Micah chapter 3, is it not for you, the Lord's people, to know justice? And so several weeks ago, I said, based on the text, that real religion calls us to do justice. To make visible the character of God in actionable ways, in concrete ways that act as salt and light in our homes, our families, our places of employment, in the school system, in government, community, and indeed in the nation and around the world. And yet justice can become hard-hearted, hard-headed, inflexible, legalistic. Inflated by religious hubris and pride. And so the second value of real religion comes in verse 8. The Lord calls our attention to the second value of loving mercy. That's the other response to the grace of redemption. Not just doing justice, but also loving mercy. Now, I'm reading and using the New American Standard Bible, and the word there is kindness. If you have an NIV Bible, a New King James Version, or an English Standard Version, or perhaps some other version, it's most often translated with the word mercy. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's invested with a rich kaleidoscope of meaning in the Old Testament. Basically, what it refers to, though, is God's firm relational commitment to his people. It is the outpouring of God's kindness, the outpouring of God's goodness, his steadfast covenant love and compassion. After Israel's great sin of idolatry in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord had just revealed himself to them in spectacular ways. They heard the voice of God in Exodus 20, giving to them a moral law, if you will, that that revealed his character and by which he called them into fellowship with himself. A relationship established by grace, but in a grace context, he gives to them the revelation of his moral law. In Exodus chapter 32, then they succumb to idolatry, making an image and bowing before the image. And so the Lord is filled with indignation. And Moses now in Exodus 34 is on the mountain interceding between God and and his people. And Moses begs the Lord. He pleads with God for him to show him his glory. And listen to how the Lord responds to Moses' request. Lord, show me your glory. And God begins to proclaim his name to Moses. And here is what the Lord says to him in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, 
who keeps loving kindness for thousands and the implications is thousands of generations, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. In other words, God is profuse in his mercy. It overflows his nature and his character. He's abounding in mercy toward his people. It's the disposition of our God to be kind to both the evil and the good, the thankful and the unthankful. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, when he calls us to be like our Father in heaven. He says, for he sends the rain on the good and and the evil, and he makes the sun rise on the, on the, the, the just and the unjust. It's the kindness and the goodness of God. The psalmist in Psalm 145 says that the Lord opens his hand. And he satisfies the desire of every living thing. And so the scripture is preeminently preoccupied with showing us and unveiling to us the mercies of our God. Mercies that take concrete action, not just in word, but it's demonstrated repeatedly in actionable ways. For example, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. And the Lord steps in and issues a gospel promise. The first gospel promise comes in the midst of ruin and fallenness. And he says, I will give the seed of the woman. He promises and he propitiates with that promise in the Garden of Eden. He comes into a deteriorating condition. In fact, in Genesis 6, it says that the earth was filled with violence and the imagination of men's heart was only evil continually. And the Lord comes in that situation to preserve and protect life, and promises a covenant sign, gives a covenant sign of his continued preservation. This chapter is filled with the mercies of God. In verses 3, 4, and 5, the Lord comes to a people in bondage in Egypt, in servitude, groaning under bondage, and he hears their cry. And he remembers his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again in Micah chapter 6, the Lord comes to them, and he frees them. He liberates them. He sets them free, brings them into fellowship with himself, sustains them into the, in the wilderness, leads them into the land of promise. And you'll find the mercies of God abounding through both testaments. The Psalms celebrate and praise and rejoice in the rich mercies of God. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 103, begins with David blessing the Lord with all of his heart. Bless the Lord, O my soul, he says, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And he begins to recount the blessings of God. He forgives all of our iniquities. He heals all of our diseases. He redeems our life from destruction. He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies our mouth with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. And then I love this analogy. It says that the Lord has not dealt with us. According to our sins and iniquities. But he's removed them as far as the east is from the west. Like a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. The Psalms celebrate the mercies of our God. But the mercy of our God is revealed most fully. Most clearly, most abundantly in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in the fullness of time, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
But he emptied himself and came in the likeness of a servant. And he stooped even further and went the way of the cross, the Via Dolorosa, and suffered unspeakable agony. He drained the cup of God's judgment. He was forsaken that you and I might be received. Such is the mercies of God in Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Such is the mercies of God. In the days of his incarnation, the days of his ministry, the scripture often says of Jesus that he was moved with compassion. Luke 24 says he was a prophet mighty in both word and deed. Peter preaching to Cornelius says that he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. My point simply is this. The mercy of God was on full display in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 9, looking at a vast multitude of people. Jesus looked at him and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And the text in Matthew 9 says that he was moved with compassion. The word moved with compassion in the New Testament literally means that there was a a deep inward response and groaning. Several years ago, I was in Mexico on a missions trip. And we were in uh, villages around Juarez, Mexico and narrow streets with the stench of open sewage in the air and tiny shacks, just unbelievable, almost unimaginable poverty rimming that little valley that ran between the hills. And as we began to play music and began to worship people, children in particular, but people began to stream out of those shacks on the hills and they began to pour down the hills and honestly in a dusty plain with wind howling around us and watching these multitudes of people stream down the hills, I had to turn away and wipe tears from my face, not because I'm so filled with compassion, but I thought to myself, what must our Lord have seen in the days of his ministry when he looked at people who were diseased and demonized and burdened by guilt and iniquity? What must God incarnate have seen that he was moved with compassion. We just recently celebrated the resurrection of Christ in John 11, the shortest verse in the Bible. I recently told uh, the Sunday school class I teach in the first hour, it my, was my favorite verse of the Bible when I was a child, because it's the shortest verse, shortest verse in the Bible. And when the Sunday school teacher would send us away and say, learn a verse for next week, it was always my favorite. Jesus wept, two words. John eleven thirty five, but it's pregnant with meaning. It's freighted with such enormous implications that our Lord standing before the tomb of Lazarus, he weeps. Descending Mount Olivet in his Passion Week on Palm Sunday, the text in Luke 19 says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I'm telling you, our God is filled with mercy for lost people. He's filled with mercy for his people and a vital mark. The prophet says the Lord through the prophet says a vital mark of real religion is not simply doing justice, but it's also loving mercy, loving kindness, kindness or mercy is the response of those who've received mercy. It's the necessary anecdote to the toxin of self-righteousness. Do I love kindness and mercy? Have I received God's mercies? Have you received God's mercies? 
then you're called to be a channel of that mercy, not a cul-de-sac, but a channel of mercy. Do I love mercy and kindness? Do I love it? Do you love it? Do you revel in it? Rejoice in it? Worship on the basis of it? Serve because of it? Do justice in light of it? Do you love to show it in your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors? Do you show mercy to enemies? Do you treat people as image bearers of God? Do you treat people as if they matter? Because that's really what mercy is, living as if people matter. And loving mercy. It's the Spirit-prompted response to God's mercies to us in redemption. Luke chapter 7, Jesus went to the home of Simon the Pharisee, a man who was filled with religiosity. He was religious and proud of it. And Jesus is having dinner there. And a woman with deep moral stains, burdened by guilt. Perhaps she uh, had years of bad decisions that lined her face. She comes into the midst of God incarnate and she begins to weep and she weeps so profusely that her tears begin to fall on the feet of Jesus. And she lets down her hair and begins to dry the feet of our Savior with her hair. And Simon, the religious man, stiffened and said, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And Jesus, looking at Simon, says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it. And he said, this woman, who is forgiven much, loves much. And you see, that's the point of the story. Is that when we know how much we've been forgiven. When we know the kind of mercy that God has poured out upon us and continues to pour out upon us daily. Then mercy just naturally flows from us. We almost can't help but be merciful because we know all that God has done for us because of Christ. God's exhortation to the people in Micah 6 was simply, live out mercy based on the mercy that I've poured into your life. Remember, remember, remember what I have done in your life. Mercy in the Old Testament was expressed in concrete ways, just not in word, not just saying I have a lot of mercy. Mercy acted, mercy responded, very practical ways. In the law of God, in Exodus chapter 22, in Leviticus 19, in Deuteronomy 24, the Lord said to be kind to the stranger in your midst, be kind and merciful to the widows, the orphans. When you harvest your grain, Don't go back over the field, but leave grain in the field for those who don't have fields to come back and harvest. When you pluck fruit from the trees, pluck it one time. And if you don't get all the fruit in one pass, leave it on the trees for the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the poor to come and gather from your field. When you take a poor man's garment as a pledge for a debt, return it before the sun goes down because... It's his only garment so that he will be able to sleep warmly. Mercy took very concrete ways. The point of Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 about the man who owed an insurmountable debt, a debt that he was not able to pay. And when grabbed by the throat by the creditor, begged for mercy, received it. The same man who had received mercy for a debt he could not pay went out and grabbed someone who owed him a debt. By the throat. 
And when his creditor begged for mercy, he did not give it. What a disgrace to mercy to not be merciful. What a disgrace to grace to not be gracious. That's the point of the parable. We give willingly, freely, joyfully what we've received. And in effect, we're doing unto others what God has so willingly and freely done unto us. If God has comforted us, then we're able to comfort others. If God has forgiven us, then we're able to forgive others. If God has loved us, then we're able to give that love back. If he's laid down his life for us, then we're able to lay down our lives for others. Very concrete things. We forgive those who wrong us. We show concern for the poor. We're kind to the weak and the marginalized. We rescue the afflicted. We share out of our abundance and our substance. And loving mercy always follows the path. Of the gospel. When the gospel is embraced and applied and lived in the power of God's spirit. The city of London was anything but hospitable. In the 17th century. The Thames River reeked of open sewage. Within the towering spires of St. James. And Westminster and Buckingham Palace. There were. Narrow alleyways leading to diseased-ridden, overcrowded tenements. The city was dark, depraved, despairing. Drunkenness and despair abounded. Crime and corruption ruled the day. Until the Spirit began to awaken people spiritually. Through the gospel truth, the gospel of grace proclaimed through men like Whitfield and the Wesley brothers... And Howell Harris and Daniel Rowland and John Sinek and others. And as the gospel began to be proclaimed, the city came alive and exploded with mercy. Prison reform began to take place. Education reform began to take place. Almshouses were established. Orphanages were built. Medical care was renovated. It was the result of God's people. Being impacted by the gospel afresh and again. And as a result of the explosion of mercy, the soul of a city tottering on the brink of despair began to be mended as the mercies of God were expressed through his people. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of English preachers, preached to thousands for decades at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in England and London. He's known for his preaching ministry, his pulpit ministry. But what is not commonly known is that Spurgeon so believed mercy followed the gospel that he was instrumental in establishing 60 institutions, orphanages, hospitals, schools, almshouses, charitable relief to the poor. Kindness was shown in in actionable ways to the widows, the orphans, the poor, the weak, the marginalized. And wherever the gospel has spread from Jerusalem To the Reformation, from Europe to Africa to America, mercy has always followed. And the structure and the fabric of a community and a society and the people and a nation have been impacted. Hospitals have been established, orphanages built, rescue missions developed, almshouses founded, charitable societies incorporated, missions advanced. Because mercy, listen, mercy is the emblem of the gospel. Mercy is the emblem of the gospel. Unbelievers can quarrel over theology. 
They can debate philosophies. They can dispute history and historical records. But they are silenced in the face of mercy. Acts chapter 6 records an early incident in the life of the early church that really threatened to bring disruption and division and stop the spread of the gospel. Widows were being neglected in the distribution. We don't have time. It's not germane to the story to go into the details of all that. But, but the apostles responded. A diaconal ministry was established so that widows were being adequately taken care of. Something the religious authorities in Jerusalem had failed to do, the church stepped in and did. And one of the great summary statements in the book of Acts is the gospel advances from Jerusalem to Rome. One of the great summary statements in the book of Acts comes after mercy was shown to the widows in the early church. And it's in Acts chapter 6 verse 7. It says the word of God spread rapidly. And a great many priests became obedient unto the faith. Men who were antagonistic to the gospel. Their antagonism was silenced. As they saw widows in that church being cared for, nurtured, fed, and clothed. Today marks the 95th anniversary of the greatest maritime disaster in recorded history. The sinking of the Titanic. Yesterday was my wife's birthday. And the Titanic actually struck the iceberg on the 14th. But it sank on the 15th in about 2 hours and 40 minutes. Shipyard Magazine billed the Titanic as virtually unsinkable. It was an Olympic-sized ocean liner that carried every conceivable luxury of that day except one, enough lifeboats to save those who were on board. Edwina Trout, an English lady, 28 years of age, whose life had been marked by a lot of health problems, had been in America living in Massachusetts. She was coming back to England to visit had visited and then was headed back to America, was on board the maiden voyage of the Titanic. She felt a jolt and then heard the warning sirens. And so she scrambled out of her cabin, awakened her two roommates, whom she did not know prior to the voyage, and grabbed a prayer book and a toothbrush and scrambled to the top deck. When she realized the magnitude of what had happened and what was going, she resigned herself to her fate that she would not survive. And she later said, I resigned myself to my fate because of my health problems. I didn't think I would live a long life anyway. Single woman. And the crowd carried her along in a mad rush until she found herself thrust in front of lifeboat number 16, suspended by davits and swaying in the frigid air. Suddenly a Lebanese passenger, third class passenger by the name of Thomas, handed her a three month old baby boy and said, This is my sister's son. Will you save him, please? Please, please, will you save him? And so Edwina took little Assad in her arms with her prayer book and climbed into lifeboat number 16 and it was slowly lowered to the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. As they slipped away from the sinking ship, she could hear tearful sobs as fathers and mothers and children were being separated, women and children first. And then through the darkened 
cold air that night, she could hear the night air punctured by screams and pleas for help. As the icy waters steadily took their toll and approximately 1,500 people perished in those waters. And to float out there, a prayer book under one arm, a three-month-old baby to whom she had no biological connection under the other, shivering, Winnie, as she was known to family and friends, said to herself, I've been saved for something. I have been saved for something. And she spent the bulk of her next 72 years, she lived to be 100, buried three husbands, investing herself in doing justice and loving mercy because she knew in her heart that she had been saved for something. You see, the problem, I think, the underlying issue in Micah chapter 6 is that God's people had forgotten the purpose for which they had been redeemed. They had not been redeemed for unethical business practices, false scales of balance and short measures. They had been redeemed to live out the implications of their redemption, of what it was like to be a merciful people, of what it was like to taste of the goodness and kindness of God. And I wonder today, Do we not sometimes forget the purpose for which we have been saved? Well, here's what God says in verse 8. Real religion. Religion that honors Him. That helps people. Religion that joins both worship and witness, heart and hand together, does justice. But it also loves mercy. Would you pray with me? Our fathers, we bow before you this morning. We are thankful and grateful for the rich, incredible mercies that you have poured out upon us and the Lord Jesus Christ. And like the hymn says, we are prone to wonder. Our, our hearts are prone to wonder from the God that we love. Father, would you forgive us today? For we find that we often come short of the mark in thought, word, and deed. But we're grateful that there is a Savior today who loves us with an everlasting love that will not let us go. Would you apply this text today in the several circumstances of our lives? Would you make it real and concrete in us so that we might recall again the purpose for which you have redeemed us? Granted, Father, for Christ's sake, his honor, his glory. And in his name we pray. Amen.